Presbyopia Unlocked is an editorially independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Effective patient communication, a critical component in the cataract surgery process. Between the education of what technologies are available, the education of what a cataract is, and then finally the communication of even cost. What we're trying to do is identify some of the baggage that goes along with the terminology we use. Clarity and mutual understanding are crucial in managing expectations for visual outcomes. We describe distance vision, quote unquote. Patients think that distance is going down the highway, not recognizing that distance also means essentially beyond your fingertip. Reading distance 14 to 16 inches, but then that's even confusing because are you reading a book or are you reading a road sign? What is the best way to have a productive dialogue? Dr. Elizabeth Yu and Dr. John Davidson will talk you through their pearls for effective patient communication. Coming up on Presbyopia Unlocked. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Yu. I'm a cornea cataract and refractive surgeon at Virginia Eye Consultants, which is a multi-specialty practice. Um, and I have with me today um, the wonderful Dr. John Davidson. Um, John, tell me a little bit about your practice and what your cataract surgery volume looks like. Yeah, we're doing uh, cataract surgery, lens replacements, LASIK, and um, focused practice on that in the last several years. And it's been very satisfying. Um, I come from pediatric ophthalmology, though. I don't know if you knew that, Liz. No, I didn't. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're so, you're, you just have the friendliest face, so I'm not surprised at all, actually. <laughs> but um, wouldn't you agree that, you know, when we're speaking to uh, patients and other doctors, I think the most difficult part of the cataract surgery process is how do we actually communicate with patients between the education of what technologies are available, the education of what a cataract is, and then finally the communication of even cost. All of those, there are certain points of sometimes discomfort, especially you know for the surgeon. So when it comes to patient communication um, in our practice, we actually have it set up a little bit where there's uh, a piece where the patient actually goes through the cataract evaluation and then meets with a cataract surgery counselor who actually describes things like the cataract and what focus and defocus is like with astigmatism, as well as going through some of the lens options before I actually meet the patient to continue the cataract surgery process and communication. What does that look like for you, John? Uh, Liz, you have a very efficient use of your time, and I, I think that's an, an amazing model. Our model has been more, uh, we've had a patient counselor before, and I kind of offloaded most of the education to her, and it, it just did not work as well for our system. I, I'm passionate about patient education and I've spent a lot of time designing my own brochures and patient education uh, booklets and such. We feel like the process starts, and you may do this too, with a mailer uh, the week before with a vision questionnaire. And yep. on our questionnaire, we ask them, how does your vision bother you the most? Uh, does your vision affect your daily activities um, for reading, driving, TV, computer are you bothered at times by glare from uh, bright lights or the sun? And do you see halos around headlights or streetlights when night driving? 
And then we'll ask them if they uh, would like to see well without glasses after cataract surgery, just a simple yes or no. And uh, we'll also ask them, because it's very helpful, I think, to get to know the patients and their visual needs, what their occupation is. And um, a lot of times people just write retired in there. And uh, I have a separate box on there that says, if you're retired, what was your occupation? Because we don't want any uh, engineers to pop up uh, halfway through the discussion when we could have found out about that ahead of time. Um, And then we also ask them what their main hobbies are. So that's what we do to prepare ahead of time. So when I look at this questionnaire before I walk in the exam room, I've already had a little bit of a profile about where we're going to go with the discussion. Uh, What do you uh, send out to patients ahead of time, Liz? In our questionnaire, we're in the packet of information that we send our to, send out to our patients. Um, yes, there is a questionnaire. Some of them, you know, send it back or bring it with them. Um, others don't, but we do send out information within that packet as well with regards to cataract surgery. Just kind of introducing them to the idea that there are options where, you know, going with glasses is a very safe and effective option, and they will need spectacles to help them with their all their ranges of vision. But if they are looking for some sense of freedom, then there are certainly options. And through the testing process, we'll figure out which options are best for them. Now, when they meet with the cataract surgery counselor, just like I had mentioned to you, on a half sheet of paper, um, in that same process where the counselor is discussing those specifics about cataracts and astigmatism and what that is um, in that education piece, they are also getting from them, from the patient, things as, as simple as their height. And when they are reading, if they enjoy reading, are they actually reading actual books versus a digital reader, um, iPads? And just like you mentioned, is their passion to golf or is it really sewing up close because that does make a difference and what other ocular history or comorbidities may exist. That kind of information is jotted down. If this patient has been sclerobuckled with silicone oil, we certainly know what the conversation piece is going to be limited to as compared to someone who otherwise has experienced good health, has had no issues with their eyes, and is coming in for their blurred vision. I think that certainly now with our growing options of technologies, um, especially with the recent approvals of, uh, the very recent approval of having a trifocal with the panoptics. Um, But, you know, just in the last two, three years, having that higher quality of the presbyopia correcting lenses, I mean, it had already opened up um, a lot more as to who I would actually offer the lenses for um, than before. And I think now that actual preoperative diagnostics on what the patients are doing may be a little bit of a simpler conversation, only time will tell, simply because now we do have a more effective option that will give distance and 60 centimeters and 40 centimeters, so we're getting the different ranges of vision. What do you think about that piece? Yeah, I like how you um, you mentioned the word process in there. I kind of keyed in on that. It really is a process, and starting with the questionnaire and then as the technicians uh, perform testing during the patient journey in your office, the technician can say, well, we're doing this topography and the reason is to see how much astigmatism you have and think about having your astigmatism corrected at the same time as your lens replacement procedure. So um, by the time they get to us, they aren't as well, by the time they get to me, they aren't as well educated as your patients are. 
Um, so I, I feel like I start from scratch. I have a little visual. I say, this is a normal clear lens. This is what it does. Here's a cataract. Now let's move to the next step. This is how we remove it. And now we have two different ways that we can do lens replacement. One is uh, what your insurance will cover, and we can't really offer you any guarantee of uh, reducing your need for glasses. It's, um, I've tried to come up with different words and terms because, you know, some people will be Plano 2020 after a, a manual procedure and you didn't pay attention to or control the astigmatism. So we have to tell them there's, a, you know, a certain percentage chance, yes, they could see like their neighbor without glasses with just the insurance procedure. Uh, but if you want to improve your odds is kind of uh, one of the catchphrases I've uh, been using that seems to help. If you want to improve your odds significantly uh, of reducing your need for glasses, uh, then you would go with the laser. Um, all of our refractive options include a laser and aura, and then they choose how they want to see, at what range, and then that's going to determine uh, what lens we use. But anybody that's going for a goal of a refractive outcome is going to upgrade to um, the femtosecond laser with aura and uh, the particular lens. I also think it's it's so tough. We call it standard lenses and standard you you know, the way we think of what standard is and what the patient thinks of what quote unquote standard is is also a different story too, right? So why would anyone not want to get what is the standard, right? So we've come up with, you know, you've called it insurance or the surgery that's covered by insurance. I, I agree. I think having a unified message across whoever is counseling and discussing surgery with the patients. Um, what we call for what's covered by insurance, we call it basic manual surgery. Right. The, the, it, what we're trying to do is identify some of the baggage that goes along with the terminology we use because, right. like you said, you use the word standard and you've got a person that goes, oh, well, I always go for the gold standard. That's, you know, everything right. else is experimental. <laughs> and so we've been using basic as well. Um, and to describe the um, monofocal non-toric lens and uh, the manual procedure. I actually had a patient a couple months ago. He goes, manual? You mean you do it with your bare hands? So you got the basic package and then you got the premium. But the problem with premium is people are going to say, well, I'm never going to spend a lot of money on myself. I don't go for premium gasoline. I don't go for premium anything. I always just go for the the basics. So we don't want them to pull any of that baggage out just because we used a term that they're going to associate with something else that's irrelevant. Right. And you know what else is so important is I think in that cataract surgery process, as we're discussing with the patient, once patients recognize that there is an additional out-of-pocket cost, and if they don't know you as their surgeon, because a lot of these patients are being referred to us specifically for their cataracts, the wall can immediately go up with some level of mistrust. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think it's so important to try to engage the patient in that conversation. So when I talk to our patients about, you know, there's the option of going basic uh, with basic surgery, basic surgery, pat cataract surgery is extremely, um, it's just as safe as any of the other higher options that you can choose to uh, go with. Um, with basic surgery, you will need glasses to really optimize your vision for both distance and ear, but it really is a glasses 
um, issue or a thought process. If you are able to give yourself the opportunity to give yourself more of that distance vision with less glasses, or if you would desire an opportunity to have distance and a range of vision with less need for glasses, there certainly are options available that I can discuss with you. How do you, what's your approach in that discussion? So I've designed a, a little two-column brochure that each step is you know, you, we're going to perform the capsulotomy with the needle and uh, with the basic. And with the laser, we're going to use the laser. And if we do the basic, you don't get to choose your vision uh, preference. And with the laser, you do get to choose your vision preference. And the basic is covered by insurance, and the laser is an additional investment. Um, we, we send out information ahead of time, but we don't put prices on it. But when they come to the office, we give them the same brochure that has pricing on it while they're dilating. So they can kind of get through their sticker shock. And then when I can come in, I can assess how much sticker shock they're in. Because as long as they've got this veil of fear and shock, they're not going to listen to a word I say. So I, I try to identify that up front when I say there's two different ways to do it. Have you had a chance to read our brochure? Are you aware that there's an additional um, investment uh, with the laser? And some people are like, oh, yeah, fine, I'll, I'll take it. And then, then that's the discussion took care of itself and then other people you, you find yourself spending a lot of time communicating the value and uh, and then you you spend all this time discussing and they look at you and they still go wow that's so expensive <laughs> and some people find the value and others don't some people have the money others don't and i try to make sure that the ones who don't have the money they don't feel bad liz you may agree some of the most difficult patients are the emetropes that come in and they expect to be emetropic after a manual basic procedure. You ever get that? Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, what's surprising is, you know, obviously, you know, patients may have one thing and then now, and we see them and within their spectacles, they're essentially with minimal sill and maybe minus 50, but then you look at their topography and they've got, a buck and a buck fifty of sill that's been neutralized by their lens, right? Or some by the posterior cornea plus the lens. But you know, once we take that cataract out and they're losing that lenticular astigmatism, what's manifesting now is a greater refractive error. It doesn't happen often, but you're absolutely right that we have to, and that's such an important piece that you know, one, we are looking at their objective data before we are discussing this with them, especially because it, we can hone in on that point just a little bit as needed, right? Um, but two, also um, recognizing that finesse that conversation, taking all of it together to make sure, just like you mentioned, that the patients are, um, that they feel well-informed and that they're walking out feeling like they made the best decision, you know, in their current situation. Absolutely. You know, another point on uh, patient education, I like to start off by saying, in an ideal world, we would all see without glasses far, mid, and close. The world is kind of divided into far, mid, and close. It, it, I just talk about, uh, if you want to see far beyond six feet, we're looking at road signs and TV. If you want to see mid-range, you're looking at your computer, your food on your plate, your face in the mirror, your dashboard. And if you want to see close, we're talking about your cell phone and books and your uh, knitting or your sewing, what have you. How do you break this down for patients, Liz? 
Yeah, so that's, you're absolutely right, because when we describe distance vision, quote unquote, patients think that distance is, you know, exactly that, going down the highway, not recognizing that distance also means essentially beyond your fingertips right? If your arm is stretched out. So I do like to use that visual. I will say, well, these are the ranges of vision that um, we we term as mid-range, near, and distance. So I actually stretch out my arm and I say, essentially distance is from beyond my fingertip out through 20 feet. And then just like you mentioned, I'm in that same outstretched hand, I will describe that reading vision or near as we call it, is more what I'm looking at at my elbow distance. And so that kind of describes those different focal points for our patients to help them understand. Well, one thing I've found that helps me not have to repeat myself or clarify things is to not use the word distance anymore because distance is a scale. And I had one patient that goes, what do you mean distance? Reading distance? And I thought, wow, that's, he's right. Reading distance, 14 to 16 inches. But then that's even confusing because are you reading a book or are you reading a road sign? Sure. So there's so many splits where a patient could misunderstand the message just because the word has a dual meaning. I talk about far vision, and I don't even say the word far by itself. I say far, which is six feet and beyond. So I really try to under-promise what their range is going to be by saying, you're far vision. We're going to try to get you seeing that golf ball 200 yards, which means you're going to see six feet and beyond. And anything inside six feet, you're going to need some help with either a, a mid-range bifocal or uh, offset the second eye, the non-dominant eye, for uh, a mid-range target. I think you know certain terminology that we describe to patients with regards to their reading needs. One thing I very much shy away for from is using the word over-the-counter readers. I do not discuss you know after we do we fix your vision for far vision or that distance vision. You will need glasses for uh, arms length in is what I like to say. Um, to achieve your vision arm's length in, you when you go back to see Dr. Gilbert, he will determine what those gla- what glasses you need that will best fit your reading and computer vision needs. I never use the words over-the-counter readers because then to some degree, um, it could be hurting you know, some of that relationship, um, there is going to be less of a need for the OD who sent the patient to you to begin with. So that is one thing that I have removed from my vocabulary just to make sure and ensure that, you know, there is a very smooth streamlined process where the patient is going back to the primary doctor and can work with the primary doctor for their primary eye care needs. I, I feel the same way about not saying the word readers, but for a different reason. Um, I, I feel if I say readers, the people will think they only need, and I've been called out on this by patients. They go, you said I wouldn't need um, reading glasses, but I, I can't even see my food. And so if you say readers, they're going to say, oh, well, for a reading, but everything else I'll be fine. And so now I tell them um, over-the-counter cheaters for close vision. So I don't really say reading. I don't. I eliminated the word reading from describing um, the glasses that would allow them to see things close. In that same conversation, and we, it, it's so important. I think that while we don't harp on it, for us to kind of discuss uh, the night vision issues or what are the potential downsides or side effects of 
the presbyopia correcting lens products? You know, how do you describe night vision concerns? Oh, that, that's a really good question. I, um, a little while ago, I discovered a way to describe the halo effect that they may get with a, a multifocal lens as um, a hula hoop of light surrounding the headlights or the moon or the streetlights. But the difference between that, and I'll ask him, I'll go, you have some glare around headlights now? Oh, yeah. Well, the last thing we want to do is give you glare, you know, take out your cataract and give you glare. So, so rest assured, it's going to be better than what you have now, and you'll have a discrete ring of light like a hula hoop, and everything will be clear inside of that. So it should not affect your ability to drive, your ability to judge distances. And in fact, most of our patients say that as headlights get closer to them at a certain distance, 50 to 100 feet, those rings disappear anyway. How do you do it? Oh, I love that. I will say, you know, so, you know, with the great advances in our technology, it's great that we can afford this distance and range of vision. Um, with that, the side effect will be particularly in the evening or with nighttime driving. If you look at a point source of light, like a headlight or a street lamp, or even if you were to look at an LED alarm clock, there will be a glow or a discrete ring or rays kind of emanating from that point source of light if you look directly at it. Now, it's not that you cannot read what is on that alarm clock. It is that there will be a little bit of um, that ring effect, and that does tend to decrease over time, and it is non-distracting in the majority of patients. In my last 1,000 of these lenses that I've implanted, only three patients have stated that it's been very distracting to them. So the percentage is extremely low. But if that were you, we stop after that first eye and we figure out exactly what to do, whether this lens is the right lens for you and we can move on, or if we all together go ahead and swap, where well, we started with the best that there is in technology, but it wasn't what was right for your eye, and we at least can give you the best for a specific um, range of vision, whether that is far focus or near, and we'll figure that out together. I love that. I like, how, I like how you said we started with the best technology so they know that you didn't implant a defective type lens. And, um, and it's nice you have the numbers too, three out of a thousand. That's pretty reassuring for patients. Um, I like the other thing you said too, is you said you will have the halo. Um, initially, I was keeping track and we had a certain percentage of people that saw halo and a certain percentage that didn't. So I felt it was um, important to communicate that percentage to patients. And then I realized um, whatever percentage you throw out there, whatever, they're going to assume they'll be in the percentage that doesn't have the problem. And they'll tell their family and they'll remember that you told them they would not have a problem. So we switched up saying that um, 80% chance you won't have a problem, what have you. Is we just say everybody will see the halos. That's just the way the lens works. If they ask more questions about it, I'll say, well, you know, in some of the studies, they're showing even after a year, 10% of people will still notice them. But I haven't had a patient in years that was distracted or bothered by them so much that they wanted the lens removed. Uh, we could offer that as a final um, last resort if we needed to. And I, and I guess that one last thing I just wanted to know, you know, how you speak with patients. I mean, we are getting an increasing number of those who've had RK 
who've had LASIK and otherwise. And um, that's a different conversation. Now, for myself, um, I am happy to fix astigmatism on these patients if there is a, there is a, you know, there's kind of consistent regularity in magnitude and the directionality of the astigmatism. Um, and I'm happy to consider maybe an EDOF lens so long as it's maybe an eight cut RK or less, or, you know, there are Ks um, aren't steeper than 46 in a post-hyperopic treatment or otherwise. But are you offering um, presbyopia correcting options to these post-refractive surgery patients? That's an excellent question, Liz. And um, I'd have to say I've backed off a little bit. Um, the, the last low-add bifocal I implanted in an RK patient was a four-cut RK, and she was extremely happy. And so I, I'm not brave enough to eight cut RK with a, a bifocal lens or an EDOF, but um, I understand that results can be very good. One of my issues is just nailing that refractive outcome. I don't have as much confidence. And if we don't get it, then we've set them up for a certain expectation. And now we're compelled to either do LASIK over these RK corneas or PRK um, or lens exchanges. And so I've come to talk with the refractive uh, patients that had RK as um, you've got a 50% chance of being well without uh, glasses, a 50% chance you're going to be dependent on glasses. And if your main goal is to reduce your need for glasses, then you've got about a 50% chance of a lens exchange. Um, so I think that helps. Yeah. The pre-op expectation setting. Now, the more common patients, as you said, are the LASIK patients, myopic LASIK being more common than hyperopic LASIK. And um, I do like to see how flat the Ks are and get an estimate of how much uh, treatment they had for how much myopia pre-op. And if they had a, a high treatment, then they're going to have high coma in their corneal wavefront. I'm not going to offer a uh, bifocal lens. I'm going to talk with them about blended vision with monofocal lenses, toric correct the astigmatism. And if patients have never tried monovision or blended vision before, then I talk with them about the importance of doing one eye far, one eye mid, retaining depth perception. And then for close, they can get the store-bought cheaters. Right. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And um, and it's the, the one other thing that I also further counsel um, is especially with the RK patients is I, or try to delineate is how much does their vision fluctuate from morning to night? And, and I'll say there will be a point in the day that we can get you where you do have some more clarity in your vision with less glasses. But by nighttime, you may notice you have more near vision than you have distance vision. You know, and so there, there, there will be that fluctuation. And, and I always mention, just like you, and it's so important that they are at a slightly higher risk because no matter how much we have uh, kind of advanced in uh, calculating for uh, those corneas that have already been operated on, the mathematics of it are just not as accurate. And that's a huge part of it. So we've also now had them sign a separate consent that the patients understand that they are at a slightly higher risk, that you know that we will um, that they may either require glasses or um, some extra level of correction in order to uh, refine their vision after cataract surgery, just because these patients have that already baseline higher expectation oftentimes. 
I agree. We have a separate consent for prior refractive surgery, and we outline all the possible surgical options, including non-surgical options, and have them sign that so they know. And one thing I've started using lately, talking about patient education and how to um, make it in lay terms, is um, I've told some patients, and they seem to like this, that you know, if you're doing um, like bow and arrow and you're shooting at a target and there's no wind, the chance of hitting that center target is pretty good. But um, that's no LASIK. Now, if you've had LASIK, you've got a crosswind. And the problem, <laughs> <laughs> problem is we don't know how fast that wind is blowing because we don't have the records on your previous LASIK. If you were minus 2, minus 4, minus 8, minus 12. And so that crosswind is a variable and we may be off target. And we're going to do the best we can with multiple formulas. And we're going to pay a lot of attention to hitting that target as accurately as possible. But the problem is three different opinions from three different calculators may give three different lens powers. And we have to choose one. Right. And I think ultimately, you know, just to wrap this up, because I think we've had a pretty good conversation about the, you know, how we speak with our patients in that process. It's so important that I think now in terms of satisfaction with these lenses, looking for dry eye disease and ocular surface disease is of utmost importance. And between the questionnaires and teasing out fluctuating vision and, and any irritation or dry eye, we get myography. But once we get that idea that there is some dry eye, right? Like you and I, let's say we've already established that whatever we're doing diagnostically, we recognize that there is dry eye and we have to be looking diagnostically. So then when we describe that to the patients of the blurred vision and teasing out the difference between what is from dry eye, what is from the cataract, do you have a set thing that you discuss with your patients? Yes. I tell them you have dry eye and you have cataract. The percentage of, of each affecting your vision, we don't have a good uh, measurement for necessarily. It could be 10% the dry eye. It could be 90% the dry eye. In whatever case, I'll try to give them an estimate. But we're still old school how we work up our uh, lens replacement patients. We still have them come back on a separate day for a biometry visit with our technician and go over all the uh, paperwork. And um, that, that allows us to identify the dry eye and take care of it. And I'll tell them one of the main reasons is Number one, if we fix your dry eye now, you may find your cataracts aren't bad enough. You may not even want the surgery right now. We can kick that down the road a little while longer. Um, or two, if you still feel like you need the cataract surgery and it didn't actually help your vision or your visual function, at least your corneas are going to be um, giving us more accurate information. So when it comes time to do the procedure, we've got better numbers. Um, I do something similar. I mean, we see our patients and, you know, we do it bring them back, especially if I'm going to institute some kind of rapid rehabilitation for their dry disease. But in that conversation, you know, I'll say something like, hey, Mrs. Smith, just as in 72 birthdays that you've been so fortunate to have, our hair turns a little bit more gray over time and our lens turns more brown. So our vision gets more blurred over time. But a cataract, similar to our hair turning gray, it just kind of gets more and more blurred over time, but it stays at a baseline with slowly progressive blur. If you, you are noticing that you're, you know, you were telling me that you're having the fluctuating vision, that it's hard to keep things into focus and you have to blink to bring your vision into focus. That's not the cataract. The cataract doesn't go up and down. Like your hair doesn't go from gray to blonde back to gray. 
So the cataract is the baseline blur, but the fluctuating hills and dips that you have in your vision, that's the dry eye piece. And so we need to manage that first because that I can't get rid of with doing the cataract surgery, but I absolutely need to address on the front end so that we can get you to um, have the best results with surgery. And we will still, after the surgery, need to maintain dry eye treatment in order to keep your vision as optimal as possible. And for the refractive patients, I'll tell them a, a dry eye is going to affect their ultimate refractive target. At the time of surgery, we're gonna set them on a straight path but the dryness is going to cause them to go off the path and ultimately their vision won't be focused where they want it. I've been telling them lately that about 10% of the final outcome is, is due to the healing process that we don't have that much control over. But if they have a dry eye, uh, we can at least control that aspect of it. And um, I think that kind of gets the message through. Absolutely. Are there any last thoughts that you have you know, that we have not maybe covered um, in that discussion and communication process with our patients? I think one of the things that we didn't talk about that we've been doing quite a bit is um, mixing low-add and high-add bifocal lenses, one eye each. And that strategy has really been working well for us. Um, the fact that a trifocal lens is now available, I think, uh, like you had mentioned earlier, the patient discussion, the counseling time will probably be reduced because we don't have to necessarily uh, talk about blending two different bifocals with two different strengths and weaknesses. We can talk about trifocal vision both eyes. Oh, absolutely. Um, but you're right because we do. We It takes that extra two or three minutes just to explain why we're recommending different technologies to optimize their vision. But, you know, we all had our conversation, something to the idea of there being two focal points of clarity with the lenses. But hopefully uh, it, it'll be a little bit more of a simplified process. But I certainly think that there still is room for uh, the various technologies depending on the patients. Um, so certainly just having that conversation of these two different focal points, um, one for distance and one will be for computer and the other eye will be similar, still distance, so you have that same distance vision, but it'll be extended through that reading vision. So together, the brain is what's really seeing. Um, it'll kind of put it all together, right? Absolutely. Well, Liz, I think this has been a, a wonderful discussion, um, emphasizing the importance of patient education and um, can be intimidating to try to come up with phrases and terms that um, can be understood by lay people, and uh, I hope that this has been a good session to um, give some people some ideas on how to do things a little bit differently. Um, we can all learn from each other. I've learned some things from you that I'm going to start doing, and um, and we'll just keep the uh, keep the efforts going to make sure that our patients are happy because ultimately that's why I think we're all in this business. 
Yeah, no, John, I, I mean, thank you. And to BMC, I mean, this was, I always enjoy working with you, John, but I swear I'm going to pick up that hula hoop comment. I really like that because when you think of a hula hoop, you don't really, it doesn't bring negative thoughts. And then the idea of the clarity in the middle, that really helps. I mean, that those kind of analogies, um, perfect example of how we can improve that communication process, even when we think we have it refined. Um, but there's, it's always a learning process so we can help our patients and meet their needs. Thank you to Dr. Yu and Dr. Davidson for sharing their pearls on patient communication. And thank you for tuning in. Presbyopia Unlocked is an editorially independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Be sure to subscribe and tune in to the next episode on Trifocal Technology. Music